Well, we have to pretend to like each other and like oh, yeah. witty banter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did anyone see? Well, you've all seen, I assume, the uh, Anglem. Oh, the Anglem news. Anglem oh, news. That was disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, there are no women in comics. The None response was encouraging, though. <laughs> Did you hear about the fallout? Well, it's like swift justice, definitely. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 But the the organizers are still being pissy. It's oh, like now, yeah, now it's no, just it's an open oh, vote. Breaking news! It's, it's, it's comics for pissy. It's rewriting <laughs> comics history if you include women, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Even though that's what every curator does for everything is rewrite history. The act of choosing things is rewriting history. Yep. Welcome to The Trade Waiters. The Trade Waiters is a podcast where we read comics and then talk about them. And you can read these comics and pretend that you are one of the Trade Waiters. You can be friends with cool people like us. Except not really. Well, we, I mean... <laughs> oh, harsh. We're, we're generating fans here. Okay, okay. Come with right. us on this journey. Okay. With your pals, the that's Trade right. Waiters. Yeah, that's <laughs> do we have to say it like that? Yeah. <laughs> no, we do. Um... So this episode is going to be Osamu Tezuka's Astro Boy, Volumes 1 and 2. But before we get any further, we need to first have a spoiler warning. Ooh, 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 ooh. I love that Kathleen's shaking her head. <laughs> <laughs> she never makes a noise, by the way. Kathleen's, Kathleen's spoiler warning is just to shake her head. <laughs> Disappointed. Disappointed. <laughs> Disappointed that you haven't read this book yet, because if you haven't, you're going to find out everything that happens. Given the fact that these books came out in the 50s and 60s, you've had lots of time, so get on that. The second thing we have to do is we have to do our character-revealing questions, mm-hmm. so you can find out who we are uh, and pretend that we are your friends. <laughs> um, today's character-revealing question is going to be about manga, there have been many, many things invented in Japanese comics specifically that have been since imported into North American comics, and I think we've all participated in that because we all read these comics and look for ideas. So my question is, uh, of the tools that uh, Japanese comic artists use, not physical tools, but sort of like, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. 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 Of those tools, of, of the of the uh, the comic lexicon yeah. that is yeah. available in manga that is not available in North America until mm-hmm. it was imported. Uh, what is your favorite of those tools to use yourself? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump on that because okay. I know exactly what it is, and it's the the little mushroom exhale for someone sighing. Oh. Because in in Western comics, the only tool you have is a speech bubble that is the word sigh in it, which isn't even an onomatopoeia, and I kind of hate it. So I started using what was first, it was actually shaped like a mushroom, but later on uh, I started adapting it more into like a cloud-looking exhalation. And anyway, I draw comics with lots of sad people sighing, so (laughs) (laughs) it's made a a huge impact on my work. (laughs) 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 Uh, But I'm Angela Mellick, and I write a comedy called Wasted Talent (laughs) with lots of people sighing, apparently. Okay. Uh, Kathleen. Oh, man. This is a... Toughie. I wish I'd had time to study for this test. <laughs> <laughs> Pop quiz. Um, probably I do the same thing that Angela does. I didn't even consciously realize that I was picking that up from manga. Um, but I also do like, like you know when eyes get really shiny? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like that. Shiny eyes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I abuse so many of these tropes. It could be anything. Like, just random stars. Like, random little sparkles when someone's mm-hmm. excited. Oh, yeah, yeah, I do that. They're, oh, they're yeah. good communication tools. It's not it's not cheating. It's like, you like, draw this on the page and the reader understands it. But it feels it's so communication. satisfying, like cheating does. Yeah. <laughs> it's a visual language. Yeah. If that's cheating, language is cheating. Uh, Jeff. Um, hmm. Well... I was originally going to just say, like, uh, chibi-sized characters, just because I think that they're hilarious, <laughs> but I also just sort of like the the trope in manga where they, uh, where when someone's maybe expressing an emotion, the drawing style changes a little bit, so it'll become, like, more simplified or more hyper-detailed, so, like, if they're maybe sad, 
or or being cute, like it's a really light line gesture. But if they're being really intense, like then there's like all this cross hatching and detail. Uh, I just like that the art is used to sort of enhance the emotion being expressed. Hmm. Yeah. And who are you? Oh, uh, I'm Jeff Ellis. <laughs> okay. And now currently else? drawn in an embarrassed uh, minimalist style <laughs> with a gigantic <laughs> teardrop. Yeah. Like I said. <laughs> Um, well, I'm uh, Jonathan Dalton, uh, and I'm going to say something that probably will shock all the other trade readers. I like the manga tool of leaving out backgrounds. Oh, get real, Josh. Yes, no, I'm serious. You see how much work I put into my background. It's such a nice break to have panels where I can just say, there is no background in this panel. This is for the man who draws every single brick on a brick wall. But not in every panel. <laughs> okay, okay. That's the key. Okay. If I had to draw every single brick in every single panel, I would drive myself insane. <laughs> the ability to just like leave that out entirely because it's like a close-up shot. I don't know how Western comics ever got on without that. <laughs> but do you ever replace it with just like a floral pattern? Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> patterns are great. Patterns are great. Or like colors, like colors, like swooshy color lines. Oh, swooshy colors. Yeah. Or picking colors that are, that's not necessarily a manga thing, but I've got that empty space. Thanks to manga, I can put color in there. Okay. Uh, so, Angela, do you want to tell us about today's book? Yeah, certainly. So, uh, today we are reviewing, as John said, the first and second books in the Dark Horse Astro Boy collection. Uh, so, I said, I think, when we chose this one, that it's a new collection. Uh, that was incorrect. Uh, <laughs> it was actually, when I went back and looked at it, it was released in 2008. So, this oh, okay. particular Dark Horse collection was released in 2008. What hmm. confused me is that they just re-released it digitally in June of 2015. Oh, okay. okay. And because I'm a hermit who doesn't leave my house, it's new to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it was new to me as well. Okay, good. I actually had the second volume already, which I bought a while ago. Sweet. Uh, but I had to still get the first volume. Uh, they do also now have a single book that is the first two volumes together. Yes. That might be new. It, c it could be. I think for the digital re-release, that's what they did. Okay. Yeah. This should need no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, this is written by Osamu Tezuka, who was born in 1926 and died in 1989. And he's widely regarded as the father of manga, mm -hmm. which is why, as John said, this is a book that is was originally released, the stories between the 1950s and 60s, most of them. But personally, in my interest and in my personal research of trying to learn more about comics, I've been trying to find the people whose work I admire and then go back and find who they stayed as influence, and trying harder and harder to go back and find those books. And uh, Osamu Tezuka is very widely cited very often uh, in the manga community, and so since manga is one of my, my biggest points of interest, this is something that I really wanted to seek out. And he's also quite known for being heavily influenced by Disney. Disney cartoons were very popular in Japan around the time when he was around his formative years, and uh, that influence is very apparent and it started this it started a long tradition of ping pong I think between <laughs> uh, the west and the east in terms of narrative style and art style in the cartooning world which is uh, always interesting to watch as a, as a spectator sport mm -hmm. uh, but he started uh, making comics just shortly after World War II when he was 17 and over the mm -hmm. course of his life he completed over 700 volumes of work comprising <sighs> over 150,000 pages Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, a, that's a lot of ink, man. Yeah. You know, like yeah. someone, you know, his entire life basically was dedicated to the craft. Uh, and so I feel like the title of the father of manga is well-deserved. Uh, so other than Astro Boy, which is pretty widely known, I think, if you haven't at least heard the name before, uh, some of his other most, most often cited works are Phoenix, which is a story about a man's quest for immortality, Blackjack, which is a, an action story about a renegade surgeon, and Buddha, which is described as a gritty portrayal of the life of the Buddha. Ooh. So, um, that's it for my introduction. <laughs> uh, I did just want to say that uh, the particular edition that we are reading is not Astro Boy's Life in Order. So it is not the stories that were released in the order of publication. This was a, uh, according to the notes in the work itself, it is a collection that was curated by Tezuka himself, uh, and he wanted... Astro Boy to be presented in this order, so it's kind of a, his favorite stories. Uh, and the ones that are covered in these first two works are The Birth of Astro Boy, there's a little short 
thicklet about that. The Hot Dog Corpse, Plant People, His Highness Dead Cross, the Third Magician, White Planet. Uh, and each of these stories has a little introduction by yeah. Osama Tezuka himself. So. Yeah, <laughs> which uh, I will say um, that I think that was maybe one of my favorite parts of this collection, was yeah. just having the kind of d director's commentary added in. Um, I think that actually added a little something extra to the reading, where if I was reading these uh, without that commentary, I think I would have felt a little differently about it, so it was good to sort of have the artist himself put them in context. Yeah, I think because it, as a, we're like probably one or two generations removed from when this work was created, uh, it can make a big difference to see like why did the artist choose this one for me to read and what does it mean to him, right? Uh, <laughs> sort of what was the like cultural context mm -hmm. with that mm -hmm. this uh, was created and like I know there's one where he talks a bit about like violence being portrayed and like sort of robots killing robots and whether that's murder or not, yeah. um, which was kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's like yeah. puts an interesting spin on the the work itself where it, it kind of fits with what he's actually trying to do with his stories but not in the way that he intends, where he is I think trying to talk about the value of life and the value of the individual and this kind of thing that's sort of built into the storytelling but then these American uh, cartoon executives only see the violence as like the, a surface quality and say, oh, we can't have violence because that's like people killing each other. We can't do that. Whereas like the subtext is like, no, no, but the whole point of the story is to say this is not a good thing. Yeah. Well, and, and also those American executives uh, clearly uh, changed their mind because later <laughs> in G.I. Joe, when you killed robots, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I did also like the theme running through the book of like where do robot sentient robots fit in within humanity. Oh, that was um, so well done. I love that. It's really fascinating because actually I feel or I've read that this Astro Boy itself and a bunch of stories that followed in that tradition are the reason why there is not a culture of fear from technology in Japan as there is in the West. In mm. the West, robots are always like the murderous robot, the villain robot, whereas Astro Boy is your friend. He's your protector. Mm. He's their Superman. Right. And so for that reason, in Japan, uh, I understand that robots can be seen as cute. They can be seen as friendly. They're welcomed into your home. And whereas it's like, what is this thing you're putting in my house? And <laughs> you'd say in America, like, I don't trust this robot. Yeah, this Roomba <laughs> might try and kill me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Murderous Roomba. Yeah. <laughs> With a nice no. strap to it. I, I find, I've seen that. I find it interesting that you said uh, he's Japan's Superman because I think that um, one of the impressions I got from reading this is the... The, the like the actual plots and like what's going on in the story is in a lot of ways fairly nonsensical mm. and i mean it's it's written for young boys in 1960s japan and it it's of its time it reflects that very very clearly oh yeah um, <laughs> but the nonsense i feel is equal to the same nonsense that i would read in like a stan lee comic you know like it's got amazing art it's just, it's on par with what I get from like a Steve Ditko or Jack Kirby drawing a superhero, and the plot is about as good as what I'm going to get from Stan Lee, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's it's got amazing art. It's got just a fun, fantastic, like there is no we don't need to ground ourselves, right? It's just whatever is going to make a fun art piece or a fun story is is it, anything goes. And so like I feel like this is exactly the the Japanese equivalent to like a night like a 1960s superhero comic. This yeah. is just a 1960s superhero comic in Japan, so they don't need to call it a superhero. It's just someone who's got powers. It's it's a robot. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I agree. Uh, when I was reading this, I I did really get that comic booky feeling, right? Which yeah. everything we mm. read is a comic book, but it is the most comic booky thing I've read. In a yeah, long time. it like really reminded me of sort of like you know, the earlier Disney comics, um, just that style of storytelling where it's like a character explaining what they're doing as they're doing it. Yeah. Um, but I just sort of suspended disbelief and was like, okay, this is for children. Sure. Right. <laughs> I can, I can tolerate that storytelling because it's really of its time. Um, and I enjoyed how sort of fluffy and fun it was, but like kind of got to a little bit deeper sometimes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't disagree with, with any of that, that cause it is of its time, but I think there's a lot of depth to it, like, mm. when, if you can get through the fluff and the sort of the cartoony 
characters showing up in a panel for no reason and the sort of the very quick pacing and uh, and all that there's a lot of stuff in here that I think would be missing from a lot of other things I've read from the same time period mm. where uh, like even uh, uh, like Isaac Asimov stories are sort of in the same genre it's robots and the consequences of having robots in society and um, as good as those stories are they don't really go very deep they don't really think about what does it mean for there to be robots that are basically sentient beings like are they people uh, and I think Tezuka comes to that conclusion very quickly which I think is very interesting mm. where he says no of course obviously like robots are going to be people if you build people who can think like people they're people Right, uh, and so then he sort of sets up what are the consequences of that, and and I think there's a lot of science fictiony stuff in here that was ahead of where American comics would have been at the same time yeah. period. Like the analogy that I thought of when I was reading, uh, when I got near the end of the second volume, was uh, comparing this to to X Men, where the sort of the uh, metaphor of the X Men uh, has generally been read to be both by readers and by the writers who've been working for most of the, their history, that this is sort of a, a metaphor for race or something. Mm. Um, and the critique that I've often seen about this, I think the best example of the critique is one that uh, David Brothers wrote. It oh, yeah. was on the internet, where the problem with that metaphor is that the people who are being discriminated against can wipe out a city by thinking about it. Like, that's mm. not... That metaphor doesn't really hold up. Right. Whereas... In uh, Astro Boy, what you've got is robots which were built to serve humans and then don't actually have the ability to harm people. They've been programmed that way, uh, and yet they're still being discriminated against. I think that's a much... Like, that metaphor has a lot more... has, has better legs to it than the X-Men does. Yeah, but I don't think it was written in that context. I do think it was an early exploration of the consequences of building AI, as you said. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure it's specifically about race. I think it's left open-ended, but mm -hmm. uh, I like having read what Tezuka writes, like what he says about his work, I think he would be sort of on board with using it as that metaphor. Mm. And if like you're reading that metaphor into the work or you're seeing that meaning there, that's valid. Of whether course. or not the author yeah. intends it. Mm. Yeah, I would I would say though, like, I mean, from my experience reading this, there was definitely like concepts that I thought, wow, like you could turn that into a really cool story about humans and AI. <laughs> um, but I mean for the most part I think a lot of that got fairly watered down with just the the wacky kind of fantasy <laughs> frivolity. Oh yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you got to take its target audience into mind. Yeah, yes. I mean that's the thing. Like, I, I'm just saying that I think that uh, I I agree that there's like seeds that are in in the concepts, but I think that generally the exploration is more. Uh, I don't know. It, it's not as concerned with focusing on those things. It's just it's having fun, and then in the backdrop, you're kind of like, well, hey, what if you actually. <laughs> planted that seed in the ground and poured water on it, what would happen? Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things I took away from reading Astro Boy, which I'd never, I'd never read, yeah, um, I'd was I really want to read Pluto now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I haven't read I, that I was, either. I'm glad you brought that up because that is exactly what I was going to bring up. <laughs> That's really what Pluto did. Mm. Uh, so Pluto is a recently released uh, book by... Oh. It's Naoki Urasawa. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's my best friend's favorite comic series. <laughs> I've read about um, maybe a third to a half of it, and it's incredibly amazing. And what I really want to do now is find that book in Astro Boy, find that arc. It's cited in the front of the 20th yeah. century, or sorry, yeah. in the front of Pluto, so it can be found. Yeah. What, what, I, what bothers me is I actually, uh, I read out the index, which is on the first page of... Uh, the first page of the collection here, but you can't find that in index on the outside of the book. Mm. So oh. like, before you've bought it, I mean. Ah. Right, right, so right. So we'd be digging. I'd be digging basically for this one particular story, trying to figure out which collection it's in because they're not in order. Right. But basically, like this was one of the most memorable stories, based on given the opinion of people who have read it. Recently, this was sort of adapted with the consent of the Tezuka estate uh, or participation of the Tezuka estate and then rewritten and redrawn by Naoki Urasawa as a longer, more in-depth uh, story and uh, I read that a while ago and reading Astro Boy here 
for this, uh, I saw all those sort of the parallels and the connections. I'm like, oh, I know that character. I've seen that in the Urasawa comic. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I, th- I think Pero's in it. Pero's really? Pero's dog is in it at one point. I just read oh. a, uh, a chapter recently of Pluto. I think it was chapter six or something. I think you're right. And it's like some German shepherd where the yeah. dog is a robot and it's a major throwaway, basically. Oh, but okay. I, was, I was really interested in the, <laughs> the Pero story as a result. One thing that I enjoyed about the storytelling and like just like the themes in the stories was like the sort of like fake science that was going on like every story had like this almost plausible scientific reason yeah yeah where you're like okay clearly this is based on like a real thing but taken to a fantasy degree where like it was kind of exciting like i feel like as a kid i would have been excited about that because it's like oh this is real or like almost real in a way especially in the 60s when this science would have been more cutting edge like, you could have convinced someone much more easily that you would find frozen air on the moon uh, in the 60s than you could now, when we've been there and it's not nearly that interesting. Well, I mean, again, I think this takes me back to my, the comparison I made earlier, where, like, you know, back in the 60s, you could say, like, if you irradiate a spider and it bites someone, they get powers. They don't it's get like, leukemia. Okay. Like, <laughs> 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 die from regular yeah. old spider <laughs> I mean, yeah, so it was, uh, I mean, I think that it, it still, it, it plays fast and loose in the same kind of realm of just, you know, we want to tell the story, we want something fantastic to happen, we're not going to do any research, we're just going to be like, hey, frozen air on the moon. Like, you have to read this through that lens, like the sort of the art historical lens of mm. constantly being aware of the circumstances that, that this was created in. So not something for everyone to read, I don't think. Yeah. yeah, I would agree. Having never read any Astro Boy before and just being really curious about comics from that time, I was kind of, I got what I expected, but I was also surprised in certain ways. So mm-hmm. I was really surprised how well-drawn and cinematic mm-hmm. the art is. Because, I mean, you see yeah. art from this era, this this era of cartooning, and it's it, it does have a lot of technical expertise in the way. I'm thinking mostly of Jack Kirby's like early work that I've mm-hmm. also been studying, but the print quality is like really rough. Yeah. And the layouts are really weird. Mm. And I thought that Astro Boy was... The layouts were actually really sophisticated. Mm. The line work was really clean. The action and composition of all the panels, I was mm. really blown away by some of them. It's like, I can't believe this is this is uh, groundbreaking work, mm. right? You yeah. know, like, he's not referencing anything else. This uh-huh. is coming from whole cloth, more or less. Yeah. yeah, you can see why every comic artist in Japan since Tezuka has looked to Tezuka for their inspiration, because it's all there. All the elements, the familiar elements of manga, they're all right here in this book. It's incredible for that reason. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really, really glad I read it. I'm really glad that I have a concept for it now. But the the schlocky kind of writing did did break me out a little bit, and so I'm not sure if I'm going to plow through the rest of the whole series. Maybe out of interest, but... Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm on the same page as you, Angela. Not sure if I'll read any more of this particular work by Tezuka, but very glad I did read it. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I'm I'm not saying much different from what you guys are saying, but yeah, I would I would say that the art itself, um, I totally understand why people say Tezuka is like king of manga, that he's like the godfather of all that has come after him. Um, the art art is amazing. I will actually say though that I think, you know, going into this series I have memories of lots of different comic aficionados that I've encountered who talk about Tezuka and these hushed tones as this like amazing contributor to, to comics and narrative and and elevating it like that, that somehow Tezuka is maybe better than uh, a Marvel comic. And I would say from reading this, I think that they're equivalent. I think that Tezuka was as good a writer as Stan Lee. Uh, take that for a positive or a negative. And I think he knew how to draw, and I think that uh, I, gr- I agree with you. The stories, ultimately, it really pulled me out because it it was not written for where I'm at in my head. If I was uh, 10 years old, I think I would love Astro Boy. And then if I was reading it now, having a memory of reading it ten, at, at the age of 10, I would probably be really nostalgic about it the same way I am when I read like Steve Ditko Spider-Man comics. Um, but because I don't have that history, there's a lot of moments where I'm just like, what is going on? What? This doesn't make any sense. This is like a fever dream, you know? Uh, and so, yeah, I would say I don't regret reading the two volumes, but I, I think I'm kind of done as okay. well. <laughs> Great. 
So, do we want to discuss more play-by-play style each sure. of the stories? Sure. Uh, do we want to start with The Birth of Astro Boy? Uh, yeah, yeah, I actually really enjoyed this uh, little introduction. Like, one of the things that I like the most about Astro Boy is how international its scope is. It's not just about Japan, it's not just about Tokyo. It's sort of writing a story that is the future of the world. And not just the future of the world, but uh, a future where people of many different nationalities are contributing. Yes. If you consider that this was written in the 60s in Japan, right after World War II, was when Japan economically and sort of uh, socially or whatever was sort of at the bottom, it was at its lowest point, to say that there will come a point in the distant future of the year 2000 when Japan will be an equal participant in the, the frontiers of science, along with countries in Europe and uh, Native Americans and uh, all these other people, that that is a pretty profound thing to be saying at that time. Extremely yeah. optimistic. Yeah. 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 Actually, uh, I just wanted to jump in and I just wanted to comment that, um, you know, in this particular collection, uh, and I, I imagine your print book maybe has the same thing, the first page had a disclaimer about, you know, like, this book was written in the 1960s. There might be some representations of people of different ethnicities that might be offensive. Please keep in mind that it was the 1960s. Like, you know, mm-hmm. um, one of those kind of little disclaimers, just, just like, please don't be offended when you read this comic. You know, it's from a long time ago. And so I was immediately like, whoa, am I going to be reading, like, Tintin in the Congo here or something? But uh, I have to say, like... I don't really recall any oh, stereotypes um, as I was going through. And I, sorry, I just wanted yeah, to also comment that I found it really interesting that in the history of robots in this world, the first innovator is an Apache yeah. Indian. And the, the drawing of him, I don't feel, embodies any caricature of a Native American. It's just like a guy with a beard. And so I was just like, wow, like, I've been primed to be like, Watch out for the racism, and then as soon as I start reading, it's like, the pioneer of androids was this Apache who doesn't have, like, a headdress on, you know? It's like, good good job. Good job, Tezuka. You're doing, you're doing well here, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I mean, I there's, like, uh, I think what they're referencing is, like, uh, I can't remember which story it's in, it's but there's... White Planet? Uh, yeah. I think it's probably I the think, one you're thinking of, because um, it's the one that really struck me. There's a couple of robots drawn as like yeah uh, i know that savory caricatures um mm, i must have missed them yeah it's I don't like a, it's a one panel it's thing like one i don't panel. even know where it is in here somewhere but there's like one panel where there's these like very cartoony robots that are just like in a parade or something so they're just like here's some cartoon yeah. robots uh, and uh, one of the cartoon robots is kind of like a i don't know even know what you call it like a caricature of black people um, oh, yeah, but it's, it's yeah. not good. And but there's probably other things like that in the, other volumes, and they just have this at the start of all the volumes. I, right. I do appreciate that note, though, because um, it, it's always... I don't know. It, it bothers me when um, media is presented as, like, oh, it's this, like, great work, um, and it's presented in an uncritical manner. Like, it can still be mm-hmm. a great work, but absolutely it's great to acknowledge, like, the problems... Um, with it when it comes to things like oh, representation oh, yeah. of race and gender because there are like quite a few you know people who wouldn't include that uh, mm. in works for other cartoonists. I don't think I've ever seen a disclaimer like that at the start of a Tintin book. Yeah, yeah, like it <laughs> well, just gets just presented as like we're like this is this is like a pinnacle. This is the best, and never like oh, but also maybe they did some things that we don't necessarily agree with today. You mm. just be them, critical when you yeah. read it. You see them at the front of some Disney and. Looney Tunes cartoons now. Mm. Uh, well, when they're collected, I don't mm. think they show them on TV anymore. Well, they they yeah. also um, have that at uh, if you read uh, Blade of the Immortal because his oh, yeah. clan symbol is a swastika, ah. except that it's the actual Shinto temple symbol that's going uh, clockwise. I don't remember which way. As opposed to or it's whatever it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah, the opposite. proper it's a proper representation of the symbol before Hitler flipped it around and perverted it. So they have this whole disclaimer at the beginning being like, our main protagonist has a swastika on his back, but let's explain about that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> does anyone remember if Asterix books have any kind of disclaimer at the start? Because I read I Asterix, and I that do. was the thing no. that I just couldn't get past. I no. assume not. They didn't when I was reading them. Okay. Considering that they're still making them pretty much and doing that, yeah. I'm going to say, no, I don't Yeah, think I even the ever. recent 3D <laughs> animated uh, Asterix cartoon, I was like... <sighs> Here, okay. Have we not fixed this yet? Really? Yeah. I'm surprised they carried that forward. I haven't seen. Yeah. I, I read a lot of Asterisk when I was a kid. Mm. And I really enjoyed it, but it's great, obviously. except for that one thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyways, we should probably get back to Astro Boy, though. But uh, even compared to like other comics from this time period, uh, I will say like like there's less of that yeah. in uh, Astro Boy than in uh, Asterix or Tintin yeah, or yeah, yeah. whatever. Well, that's. Uh, superhero comics were doing yeah. at the time. Well, I mean, that's what I, I just reading that disclaimer. I was kind of priming myself to see a lot of horrible stuff, and then reading this, I'm like, oh, this seems pretty decent. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's not the worst. Uh, in fact, my my biggest complaint with the first chapter is just um, the fact that uh, Astro Boy's father has angry eyes in every single panel. He's a jerk. So yeah, but <laughs> like the, the the story is written in a way where his father's turn to evil is supposed to be a surprise, but he's drawn <laughs> with angry eyes in all black, okay. sneering at the reader in every single panel. So as soon as I started reading this, I'm like, he's gonna betray Astro Boy. <laughs> There's no surprises here. <laughs> I feel like at the time that this uh, introduction was written. People already knew all the characters, though. Well, so they, okay. they would, it wouldn't have been a surprise to anyone. Yeah. Except us. But, I mean, isn't this the original origin of Astro Boy? No, is this no. Suzuka redrawn? Yes, oh, but okay. it wasn't written in this, or it wasn't written and drawn in this order. Oh, okay. So this is redrawn after yeah. the original origin had been yeah. established. Yeah. That makes it worse in some ways. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, sorry. Like, this is <laughs> my biggest complaint about this entire series is as I read it, I found I kept shouting at the screen like, show don't tell! Show don't tell! (laughs) (laughs) Or tell don't show, but he kept showing and telling everything. It's true. It did come up a lot. Where it's like, oh, I'll just uh, flip this switch and it'll do this thing, you know? It's like, yeah. <laughs> and then the yeah. oh, well, it, it just it so happens that we're caught in this giant whirlpool. Well, <laughs> like, where was this? It's lucky, lucky for me, I've got these anti whirlpool pellets in my back pocket. <laughs> yeah, that'll stop it. It's Aha, the, but you yeah. can count on my lightning that turns off pellets. Like, <laughs> it's the '60s. No one is comics literate yet. Yeah. People don't know how to read comics. It's true. It's, it's fascinating to think of it like that. Yeah. yeah. No one even knows how to decode this language yet. It's true. It reminds me of uh, the early um, Little Nemo comics, where the very earliest ones had each panel had a description of the picture at the bottom of the panel because people literally did not understand how to look at pictures and get a story out of it. Wow. <laughs> So, uh, so what is Astro Boy's uh, origin, Jonathan? Somebody made him. <laughs> yeah, well, his, uh, there was this guy, this scientist, whose son died in a car accident, and he decided to rebuild his son as a robot, even though it, like, it's not actually his son. He just builds a robot and calls it his son. And then... Um, See, do I even remember now? Like, his why son he... fails to grow up. Basically. Yeah, he realizes that when Astro Boy stops growing that he has made an inferior replacement to his son because he's just stuck with a boy forever. The boy yeah. will never turn into a man. So he, he just sells him to the circus. Yeah. <laughs> Great guy, this guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then this other scientist, the, the head of the Ministry of Science, finds Astro Boy at the circus and sort of acquires him and rescues him and says, okay, like you're obviously a really, really great robot. I'm going to take you and I'm going to build you a family of other robots to live with so you can be more like a person and not like an object that people own. But he's more than just a little boy. He's got superpowers, right? What are Astro Boy's superpowers? Well, he's got these guns that come out of his butt. Oh, he's going (laughs) to lead up to that, Jonathan. He can fly. He can fly. (laughs) He's got super hearing. He can speak 60 languages. Mm -hmm. He has uh, super eyes that have searchlights. Yeah, because that makes sense. And... As I was hoping to build up to, <laughs> he has machine guns in his butt. <laughs> he can shoot machine gun blasts out of his butt. Which, I mean, is shown to be quite practical. <laughs> he uses that several times to good effect. <laughs> you know, I was actually, when I first read that, I'm like, okay, is he actually going to shoot someone? 
with his butt gun. And then at some point in the story, he actually did. And I'm like, oh, man, I was waiting for that. Yeah, like this one point where he, like, well, turns to leave. Well, there is a spot gun, yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> like, he, he's in a situation where he's, like, it's a standoff, and he turns to leave as if, like, he's given up, and then he uses his butt gun. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> awesome. I feel like a weapon of that is perfectly appropriate as long as you use it as it's intended, and they do. So it's great. Oh, I think yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, it's hilarious. <laughs> So that was that was the origin of Astro Boy. Uh, yeah. Should we move on to the the hot dog core? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So this was probably my favorite story. It's one yeah. of the longest ones in the work, but I really like the hot dog corpse. It's about uh, Mustachio, who is uh, Astro Boy's elementary school teacher. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. Putting this together. Yeah. Uh, he has he trains dogs, and Pero is his favorite dog. And uh, one day the dog is abducted by a Cruella Deville type character, apparently. <laughs> And turned into a humanoid robot. And there's a lot of exploration in this story about what it means to be an animal versus a human. And, like, uh, the nature of cyborgs and, you know, obedience to your former life. And I thought it was just really interesting. It had a lot of depth Mm -hmm. uh, compared to some of the the rest of the stories. I I agree. I agree. I felt like there there were... Again, this is one where I... I, It's like there's seeds, right? It's like the... They, the concept here is that they, this woman wants to hold possession of the moon because it's got diamonds on it, and she wants all the diamonds on the moon, as you do. Right. And so she needs an army, so she makes an army out of dogs. So they take dog brains, and they put them in humanoid robot bodies. Yes. And uh, I think the hilarious reveal in that is that when the henchmen are not doing evil bidding... They start like chewing old shoes and scratching <laughs> behind their ears and like chasing cars or whatever. Like they're just acting like dogs, but they don't know why. They're like, I yeah. don't know why. I'm just compelled to chew on this shoe. I don't yeah, know I why. I need this. This yeah. is like this weird, weird fetish habit. Like, <laughs> just don't touch me. Yeah. And it's like, so then, yeah, Pero is sort of struggling with that he's like got to be an evil henchman, but then he also remembers being a dog and he's very torn between those two worlds. And yeah, I think like that. That has so much potential as as like a, a plot line. I I will say I think ultimately I didn't feel like it paid itself off very well, but I liked um, it. But I, I think that, that was a great. I agree. This was maybe one of the more compelling ones for that. Really looking at identity and and you know robots versus cyborgs versus like human versus animal. Like there was a lot going on there. You know, my takeaway from that was how much sort of pathos there was in that. Where there's this. You really care, about, or at least I, I really cared about these characters by the end. They're goofy cartoon characters. It's uh, the brain of a dog in a cyborg body, but I really felt for that brain of a dog in a cyborg body. I like, yeah, too. when he kept being, like, drawn back to his pelt. Yeah. Like, that was so upsetting. Yeah. 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 And I feel like that's something that I, I found, I, I found the emotional connection very, very compelling and very resonant in this story, whereas I have not found that type of emotionality in... Uh, Western stories of that era. When I read comics from that era in the West, it's very kind of by by the numbers to me. Like, they might say, like, oh, but she was my wife, but they don't really, like, put that emotion onto the page the mm. way that Tezuka did here. Right. Well, especially if you consider that this, I think all these stories predate the Fantastic Four. Uh, so, like, this is pre-Kirby. Kirby, I think, got closer to that, mm-hmm. but before Kirby, no, there wasn't a lot of that happening in Batman and Superman. Right. It's all like uh, all the the sort of the goofy memes that show up on the internet about Superman being a jerk are from this time period. Right. Well, that was. I mean, I'll put my superhero nerd hat on. <laughs> that was where Marvel uh, gained their their foothold was that they were the first company to start telling stories about superheroes that had a had personal a, life yeah. that ha- that were humans because <laughs> Batman and Superman were not humans originally. They were these weird, otherworldly beings that didn't act like people. And mm. then so Stan Lee started writing, like, what if it's a teenager? And then he puts on, like, a suit for, like, half of the story. <laughs> yeah, well, he got his start doing, um, what was it, romance comics? Yeah, he was doing comics? teen, teen yeah. romance comics before What if we do Spider-Man? teen romance comics, but they're superheroes? Yeah. Like, okay, that's, that's, a, that's an actual, like... Development. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty innovative, right? Yeah, but no, this was this was a this one had a lot of twists and turns, and uh, again, just like 
any villain is very clearly a villain as soon as they show up because they've got angry eyes. There's no surprise that they're a villain. Um, but it was it was very well done, and I think like the the end result it is um, that you know uh, Paro ends up in a cyborg cyborg robot dog body. Yeah, I'm assuming ends up becoming a cast member, but even though he doesn't end any of the other stories. Yeah, I'm hoping he shows up again because. I don't know. I really liked this character. And like I said, he was like alluded to in Pluto. So it could be that he's just someone who shows up in the background once or twice in the future. But mm. uh, in the end of it, they get to say like, oh, now Pero gets to be a dog. But really, he was a dog all along, which I feel is also really poignant. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like just because you put him in a human, he didn't stop being a, a dog. Yeah. He was always a dog. And he wanted yeah. to be, you know, he wanted to live his life as a dog. Oh, um, speaking of dogs... Um did anyone notice that all the police cars are just giant dog yeah. heads? Yeah, that was weird. Yeah. What? Why? I don't know. I assume that's explained I at some point. If there, are, if there are any Japanese readers who grew up in the 1960s, can you email us and explain why the police cars are drawn as dogs? There is yeah. a reference to that in Pluto, where really? they don't actually show police cars as these like cartoon dog heads. But at one point at the Ministry of Science, they're looking at the plans for where they're going to cutify the uh, uh, police cars to make them look like cartoon dogs. Oh. <laughs> so they're less threatening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because those, those, I thought that might have been because of this particular story. No, no, no. Story, that's a thing all later, throughout. In later stories, whenever the police cars show up, they're giant dog heads. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess that's just the thing. It <laughs> could be just one of one of his things. Because like, there's that, that nice to meet you character. Yeah. And it's explained in the foreword that this character is not actually really technically supposed to be there. It was just put in when uh, Tezuka felt like the plot was getting too heavy and not funny enough. Oh. And so we just drew this, like, and it was just this kind of gag. It's like, oh, we're introducing the new character. And then this guy shows up. He's like, please to meet ya. And they they just <laughs> ignore him, right? And he's in the, in the next panel. It's like, hello, please to meet ya. That's right. <laughs> so, I, I made a note about him. I was like, why? What is this? Yeah. If you, well, if you read here? the introduction, the, the introduction yeah. explains that. And it, yeah. I felt the introduction was really interesting, actually. But that w- that was one of the things that they noted. And I, I didn't note the uh, the cartoon dog cops. Uh, in the introduction, I don't remember that specifically being noted, but I think it's probably the same kind of thing because cops are maybe scary, mm. but if you put them in cartoon dog cars, maybe <laughs> right. more levity to it. I don't know how I got through this whole story and just like totally missed that those cars were dog. Looking at it now, it's really obvious. <laughs> I just missed out on that. Um, I don't know. I'm reading this on my phone, so <laughs> well, that's that's why it. Um, yeah. It is a cartoon dog head that is only 20 pixels high, so <laughs> you can be forgiven. So, <laughs> any other thoughts on Pero the Dog? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. So. Okay. And then, I, I had a note here, actually, that uh, I, I actually really enjoyed Plant People, which was the next one. It's funny, because I think that was one of my least favorite ones. I did not like that one. I didn't care for the ending. It's it like was Okay. <laughs> he, he turns into we just, like span the gamut of emotions by plant yeah. people. <laughs> he turns into a plant, but like, the, how does he protect himself from random kids skiing on the ski hill? Oh, um, Pastor Boy says, "Excuse me, please respect my friend." Please don't step on this flower that happens to be a sentient being that can't protect itself. Yeah. So here's how I remember the plot of Plant People. So I read yeah. this once, and basically, these ships come, and they're like, "We're gonna, we're gonna steal all the water on Earth because our plant race is dying." But there's only one actual alive person in the Armada who already knows that by the time they got to Earth, their planet had, their planet had blown up. And there right. was no point to destroy the Earth when their right. planet, they didn't have anything to go back to. And so the plant character tries to warn Astro Boy and tells him how to disable the Armada so right. that they don't destroy the Earth. But because the Armada are robots. Yeah, he lost control of those robots. Yeah. They like, only have one mission. That's right. And so ultimately, Astro Boy does succeed in his mission, and he rescues the plant dude, who was a plant all along, but was a humanoid. I, I thought that was, like, a really weird turn at the end of that, where the person's like, oh, well, my planet is dead, and I live here now. And he's <laughs> like, I don't know if people accept you, you're pretty weird, you know? <laughs> and it's like, what? Well, How is this a message of it? Like, boy does have some experience with that. I guess so, but he, he soldiers on, he doesn't yeah. agree with it, you know? Uh-huh. Gosh, it's okay with me, but some people might complain because you look so different. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's a very strange thing well, to say. Well, I think that um, this is a time where you need to consider 
the Japanese culture of the 60s versus, like, the North American culture of the 60s. Mm. And I would say that at this time in Japan, there's still very much, I would say even until 10 years ago, very much, like, in their culture of face culture and keeping up appearances and not being the nail that stands up because the nail that stands up gets the hammer. And so, like, it's a culture of conformity. And especially mm -hmm. in the 60s, like, they didn't have this hippie free love movement where people trying to break societal norms in, in 1960s Japan. Like, you were a good little businessman and you did you did what society was supposed to do. Sure. You, you rebuilt your nation, right? But Astro Boy couldn't <laughs> fly the plant due to, like, America or whatever, or <laughs> Montana, where there was just flowers. I don't know. <laughs> Put him in a garden. I yeah, think that, you know, I he's think, sort of a ski hill. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that maybe, like, um, I appreciated the sentiment of the story, but I think that that was the thing. I think ultimately Tezuka just had this idea of, like, it'll be really, uh, it'll be a real tearjerker tear if we have this delicate flower on a, on a snowy mountain that needs to be preserved because it's a living thing. And, like, <laughs> that was his end game. Mm. And then he kind of was a little clunky getting there, and it's just like, yeah, but there's a flower, it's a person, uh, it's beautiful. I do like that the aliens aren't evil. They're yes. just misinformed. Well, I feel like that's a, a trope in Japanese science fiction that I really appreciate, where these weird aliens from other planets, like maybe they just don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I think it was also interesting that, like, in the end, the invading force was uh, robots following orders. Yeah. And that the actual living being was like, whoa, hey, let's not do that. And the robot's like, quiet, you. We've got a mission. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, and then, uh, now, the other one that really stood out to me is the next one, which is Dead Cross. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dead Cross was really interesting because this is the one that goes into a lot of robot politics. Yeah, I definitely connected with that in this story. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any thoughts <laughs> on... Before I jump in, I've got <laughs> thoughts, but anyone okay. has some... It feels, like, very topical to have a story about a robot president. Well, I, yeah, maybe we should give the, the setup. So what is this? Robot, robot, uh, sorry, Astro Boy goes to a country, and it's the first country in the world to have a robot president. Yes. And then there are forces trying to unseat and destroy the robot president. He, he's suffering a bout of assassination attempts. So, yeah. like, when Astro Boy first arrived, every night there's been an assassination attempt by these other robots. Yeah. Uh, and eventually, the president is captured and told, you have to resign, uh, or else. And it, it's revealed that it's his creator who is the one telling him that he needs to resign. Because the creator, like, made the robot to learn everything that he needed to know about becoming president. Yeah. But then the robot was like, okay, I'm going to be president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, what was it? He built the robot and he's like, you're going to help me be president. You study on, you study all that presidential stuff. I'm going to sleep over here. You know, <laughs> thing. And then the robot's just like, well, I, I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> I got this. And then the robots are like, hell yeah, robot president. Yeah. And it's like, oh crap, I forgot robots can vote. <laughs> yeah. And there are like lots of um, questions about like, mm, where do these robots fit in with human beings? Like, yeah. should they be allowed to govern yeah. humans? Um, <laughs> but, but stuff yeah, I did, like that. I did take particular note of like a president uh, from a um, minority that was uh, of questionable citizenship being attacked by like a small group of radical extremists. I think I have a note here like President Rag like Obama. <laughs> I, one thing I really liked in this story was um the I can't remember if he's the secretary or what to the president. Oh, he, yeah. Like his pants, like he's he's a robot and he can split his lower and bottom half. So his pants just go off and do things. Like at the beginning of the story, Astro Boy is visited by this pair of pants yeah. that tell him that he needs to come to this other place and then they like Astro Boy sort of has to put on these pants <laughs> and they walk him yeah, to that's right. the country. Without telling him where he's going. <laughs> the law of like not having a, a robot has to have a some kind of sh chaperone or something it's yeah. like it's okay because if you're wearing pants then we're one person <laughs> yeah he was an adult. Well, no, he's not so he's wearing these giant polka dot <laughs> pants that walk independently and then to go undercover he wears a trench coat and a fedora <laughs> yeah. 
And then the guy... This is before fedoras had a horrible, horrible stigma. That's true. It was the 60s. I never remember fedoras. Yeah. I'm traveling. But I love that that character's name was translated as halfway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So goofy. He's got a teapot for a nose. Little <laughs> um, half. Yeah, this was, this was a fun one. Um, well, see, this is one that, again, like, I felt came really close to really having something to say because, um, you know, you've got this evil character of Dead Cross that is trying to thwart the president at every step. And, I mean, it gets kind of ridiculous. Um, like, they throw Mustachio in the, like, box full of... Uh, polyester, polyester balls? Polyester balls. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> I think like, that was... Uh, yeah, um, that was one of those, like, weird science things, like, fake <laughs> science that I really enjoyed. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, clearly this comes from, like, something vaguely based in reality, but, like, taken to an extreme. Yeah. Like, it's it's all kind of ridiculous, but then at, at as the story progresses, like, uh, pres- the President Rag gets abducted by Dead Cross, and then Dead Cross... Uh, removes his brain and, like, turns him into a subservient, like, drone. Yeah. And he he sort of has him become Dead Cross's slave. And, I don't know, that was very poignant to me. Like, the the idea that he's this controversial robot president, but so he's a president, he's very confident and intelligent, and trying to reconcile like he's his priority is trying to integrate robots into human society and build bridges between humans and robots and then here's this jerk human who takes that all away from him and and makes him into uh like a a a slave and like that was very that was very heavy like i i thought as a as a child i would probably be like in tears at that point and Again, like I feel like you could have you could have taken that further as a narrative, but mm-hmm. like the fact that that was in there, I think really um, was like a notable dramatic beat in this story. Yeah. Well, also the the fact that the robots, like the the reason that the president can't just find these extremists and stop them is because he's programmed to not harm humans. Mm. So they've elected a robot president who has no power to stop humans from doing harm to robots. Mm. Which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like there's uh, this. This one had some interesting things to say about the like human, human robot uh, relations. Uh, in fact, there's like yeah, a couple of the other stories seem to touch on that. But um, any other uh, dead cross thoughts? I really like the design of the robots. Like some of the secondary robots. Like there's the one with spikes all over it and like extra arms. Oh yeah. And there's the Domino robots. Like and just Domino cool designs. Cool. Yeah, yeah, I like the way um, Tezuka draws machines. Yeah, very, very 1960s science fiction. Like, this is this is what 1960s science fiction looks like. That's fun. <laughs> That's fun. Okay, so the next story in the collection is The Third Magician, which uh, personally was not my favorite story, but I thought it was one of the most beautiful. Like, I, some of these drawings in this chapter mm. were some of my favorites. Some of the, the layouts, uh, I think, are the most screen-capped one for me. Mm. Yeah, that was... Um I, that was one where I just, like, was just baffled with the, um, the approach to writing, because it's like, there's a robot magician, and he conceivably can do anything, like, he, he immediately, like, for his first act, he calls someone up on the stage, and transforms them into a pig and into a turtle, and they actually have the person, like, like, oh no, I'm a pig, oh no, I'm a, I'm a turtle, and you're, I'm like, Man, this magician's like evil. He's like turning humans into animals and but he taking. He can be evil. It. He doesn't have the angry eyes. Do yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. But yeah. So, but then like afterwards, he's like, "Oh, it's a simple trick." And he, they show this whole box with mirrors and playing with light, which I think maybe is how this trick would really be done. And and so they lead in with like, "Oh, I guess they're doing some actual scientific explanations of these magic tricks." But as the story progresses, like what the magicians are doing is magic. It's straight up magic. And then, for some reason, Tezuka feels compelled to be like, oh, but we're taking advantage of the static electricity and the Earth's gravitational pull to uh, cause that girder to turn into an ape and attack that man. And you're like, what? No, like that's not how <laughs> magic works. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it was not how the force were free. <laughs> um, one, like... 
sort of storytelling device or just like cartooning thing that I enjoyed in this story is uh, when they steal the paintings and um, a character pulls back oh, the yeah. panel and it's like, quick, yes. let's hide them behind here. <laughs> yeah. like, I love that sort of breaking yeah. the fourth wall, acknowledging that this is happening with, like yes. on a page. And, and in boxes, I thought that was yeah. really cute. That was that. I may I made note of that. That was amazing because because uh, eventually, um, the magician robot uh, and actually there's a lot of parallels between this and and the Dead Cross story because it turns out that this amazing magician robot was built by a human magician yeah. to help him, and then this robot ends up becoming better at magic than him, and so he's consumed with jealousy. And then he reprograms the magician robot to become a thief. Yeah. Which, again, it's to ruin this weird, like... Because right? they say, oh, it's just magic. It's all trickery. But yet he can use his magic to break into vaults and steal valuable paintings. So it's like, well, that's really happening. So this isn't a trick. This is real magic. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like... It's this weird sort of cross with this crime caper and these magicians, like... Um, uh, the other the other outcome of this though is that um, with all the kerfuffle of these valuable artworks being stolen by a robot, suddenly the police start to take this attitude of well maybe robots are just no good maybe we should yeah. just get rid of all robots. And then Astro Boy becomes culpable. He becomes like oh you're uh, you're actually an accomplice uh, because you're trying to help this magician robot, and so. It becomes like much higher stakes for Astro Boy. It's like I've got to clear the name of all <laughs> robots. <laughs> yeah, and I, I I really appreciated that. Um, it's like the the story itself was kind of ridiculous, but again, it's like those little seeds, and mm-hmm. it was like interesting that um, that same kind of almost like that the mutant metaphor that you get with the X Men came up here with the like, you know, every time there's a problem, I see a robot. So you know what? We need to just get rid of all robots. I say we don't let any more robots into this country till we figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 okay. Um. White Planet. Uh, my least favorite story. Same. Oh man. Uh, uh, it, okay. You know what? I don't what? even remember. It fe- it's like this boy has a car and something happens to the car. The, and the then, car gets sabotaged. Yeah. The, day before the big race. And he oh, needs to win this right. race. And then his sister was secretly a robot. That was like a copy of the car, and she sacrifices him, herself to become his car. And you know what it made me think of? It made me think of those stupid internet stories that are like, like if you cry every time. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't like this one. I hated it, it. it was probably uh, that's what I was alluding to with that uh, disclaimer in the beginning mm-hmm. because he just straight up smacks her. She's like, well, oh, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. Yeah. okay, brother, it's just your yeah. car. And he's like, shut the f- up. The most important car yeah. of my life. Right? Yeah. yeah, he treats he treats his sister like garbage. Yeah. And then he's... He's the totally fine with having a car instead of her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and he, he, yeah, he, it was when just he like, needs that car, he's like going to be this great racer. <laughs> and, you know, what else was she going to do, really? I mean, yeah. it's not like she had anything else going on. She can just be a car, right? Yeah. Turns out the whole time she was this baller robot, and nobody knew, but whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, I yeah. hate this story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same page with that, because I'm like, this is done. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think it, it definitely ended on a low point with uh, White Planet. <laughs> so uh, maybe skip that one. Yeah, yeah. This one. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it adds anything to the art. No, no. Yeah. Of the book or whatever the collection that it's trying to do. Well, yeah, I think I think this had the least to say about human and robot relations <laughs> as well. There was it's, no metaphor to this one. It's just about entitled little boys. That's <laughs> all it's about. And, and how little girls need to be turned into cars <laughs> to help them achieve their dreams. <laughs> Apparently, there are no women in comics. We're all cars. <laughs> just, just ask well, No, no, no. Women were in comics all along. We were the cars. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's it. There we go. That's terrible. <laughs> okay. Uh, so. All right. So, final thoughts on the first two volumes of Astro Boy. Uh, I'd say if you were interested in learning more about this author and his work, it's uh, an interesting way to get it. It's convenient. If if, if you. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I would say, like, if you're into your manga history, I would say this is worth reading. I'd say if you have a 10-year-old boy, maybe. Or girl. Yeah. Or, sorry. Or, you know. She might not like White Planet, but... (laughs) (laughs) But who who does? Yeah, that's true. (laughs) If you have have a 10-year-old, period, uh, then maybe uh, they might enjoy it, but I'd say for 
if you're looking for something that's really saying something deep about human robot interactions, I, I bet there's something. Read Pluto. Yeah, read Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will be probably reading uh, Phoenix next. I've read the first book of it, and I feel like it's a work that probably only gets into it three, four books in. So I think I so. I remember that. reading some volumes in, in yeah. high school. Yeah. Uh, I would say uh, I would recommend this book to um, anyone who is super into comics, whether you're a comics creator or just like a big fan of comics, you owe it to yourself to find out where all these ideas started. Mm-hmm. But if you're a casual fan of comics, if you haven't read a lot of comics, you can skip this one. No filthy casuals. <laughs> yeah, and if you're nerds only, if you're <laughs> there you go. a creator and want to take a look at some really good art and like start black and white inks, yeah. um, mm. definitely look at these these pe- these stories um, and comics by Tezuka because like his art is beautiful. There are yeah. just some like breathtaking panels. Black and white where you're like up. so much better over time yeah. than color from that era. Wow. Oh yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What is our next book going to be? It is Nimona by Noelle Stevenson. Okay. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in their Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at www.cloudscapecomics.com. Mm-hmm.